0: Welcome back to another episode of Twin Peaks The Return, a Season 3 podcast. My name is Andy Hazel, and thank you very much for listening in. I'm back to bring you an interview with one of the key characters of Twin Peaks, long-time fan favourite, Deputy Andy Brennan himself, Mr Harry Goers. A man known on the Twin Peaks set, as he will say later during the interview, as One Take Harry. But before we dive into that, I thought I'd do a quick roundup of what we know about David Lynch's forthcoming television series. In June 2018, David Lynch told an audience at a Q&A that he was interested in exploring Carrie Page's story. It is calling, he said, but there are a lot of disturbances. Two years later, Lynch registered 13 episodes of a dramatic series called Unrecorded Night with the US Copyright Office. Late last year, Screen Industry website, Production Weekly, noted that David Lynch had registered a project with the working title of Wisteria, and that it was set to begin production in May 2021 for Netflix. The site also listed it as being co-produced by A2K Productions, a company established by David Lynch late last year, and Twin Peaks Productions, which was also behind Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, The Return, and David Lynch and Mark Frost's series On the Air. In December, the site What's on Netflix noticed that producer Sabrina Sutherland, cinematographer Peter Deming and casting director Joanna Ray, all of whom were involved with The Return, would be returning to work with Lynch on the project. They also revealed that filming is happening at Calvert Studios in Van Noyce, Los Angeles, where some of the return was shot, and that the series budget would be $85 million. All this information is the footprint that any production this size leaves in Hollywood. In true Lynch style, either no one is saying anything about the production itself, or they're denying that any production is happening at all. Then the fan community began to notice some coincidences. Firstly, Twin Peaks The Return disappeared from streaming services. In May, Laura Dern, who has been linked to the production, told Elle Magazine, I have no idea what it's going to be. It's not like I'm trying to hide it. He tells no one until he's making it. It's what I love about him, but I would say that there's a twinkle in his eye and he's up to something radical and fantastic. A few weeks earlier, Carl McLaughlin shared a photo of Wisteria to Instagram, which he quickly deleted. A few weeks later, other actors who had worked with Lynch in the past, including Michael Horse, Amanda Seyfried, Sherilyn Fenn, Kimmy Robertson, and Andrea Hayes, also posted photos of Wisteria. A few weeks later, Kyle commented on the 30th anniversary of the final episode of Season 2 with the tweet that said, It's wild to think that it's been 30 years since this dark moment in Twin Peaks, yet we are all still wondering, how's Annie? I guess only time will tell. All of these things might be coincidences, friendly trolling or maybe they're stepping stones on the road to something more concrete. One thing that seems certain is that Mark Frost, as he tweeted on November 29th last year is not involved at all and two days later a document was shared online that showed Frost had stepped away from Twin Peaks Productions which is now solely owned and operated by David Lynch. So it seems as though Lynch is getting a chance to stretch out without the budgetary constraints that seem to hamper the return and create and control something wholly his own, which I think we can agree is the main thing we're here for, whether it's related to Twin Peaks or not, at least at the time of recording, only time will tell. In the meantime, David Lynch's weather reports offer us a chance to see him so regularly that fan Pauli Settler was able to compile a time-lapse video that showed the gradual growth of David Lynch's beard from clean-shaven to fulsome. Someone who is definitely associated with Twin Peaks is Harry Goers. If you're listening to this, I don't need to tell you that Goers played Deputy Andy Brennan in all three seasons of Twin Peaks and became one of the most recognised faces of the show. It's worth remembering that our introduction to Deputy Andy at the scene where Laura Palmer's body is discovered is the point where first-time viewers realise that Twin Peaks is not going to just be a quirky police procedural. Andy's tears announce that this is going to be a show that makes space for real human responses to tragedy, and that Lynch and Frost have something far more than just a murder mystery to explore. Andy's arc throughout the series veers between earnest and naive to heroic. He cried, he shot Jacques Renault, His love for Lucy Moran never wavered. He was always going to be one of the least likely people to have been involved with the death of Laura Palmer. He was always on the side of good. But then, towards the end of season three, the man who once answered the question of how to save the planet with, I do know that people have got to stop sinking their beer cans in Pearl Lake when they're fishing, was entrusted with a multi-temporal view of good and evil beyond the world of Twin Peaks. When the fireman chose Andy as the ideal recipient of this knowledge, it felt both surprising and satisfying. He had always been someone we had been asked to relate to, and now he was using this knowledge to become the architect of the series climax, ensuring that all the players were in the right place at the right time for the final showdown, and that Lucy was able to fire the shot that saved the life of Sheriff Truman and brought about the downfall of Bob. Andy takes on this heroic role with the absence of ego. Unlike so many characters we were introduced to in season 3, we're left with the idea that he and Lucy will be pretty much unchanged by everything we've seen. They remain the moral compass of Twin Peaks, and regardless of economic and social collapse, or spiritual invasion or gentrification, Andy's earnest wholesomeness, faith in duty, lack of cynicism and openness to the new will endure. These are also terms that I think are a good fit for the man who plays him, Harry Goers. I caught up with Harry as he was back at home in Texas, visiting his family, and just after the release of a short film he features in called The Vandal, directed by Eddie Alcazar. The Vandal is likely to appeal to any fan of David Lynch's artwork, but it doesn't, at least to me, seem influenced by it. The film, executive produced by director Darren Aronofsky and starring Bill Duke, is a stark black and white creation that explores the life of a man dealing with anger after a lobotomy. It only runs for 15 minutes, but it has a remarkably well-controlled artistic vision, and it's easy to see why it was included in the Director's Fortnight section of this year's Cannes Film Festival. The Vandal earned extremely positive reviews and is now being tipped as an Oscar contender in the Best Animated Short category. Off the back of this early success, the director Eddie Alcazar has got the support of filmmaker and producer Steven Soderbergh for his next project, a feature film called Star, so clearly something is afoot. When I got the chance to talk to Harry about his experience being back in front of the camera, it seemed like a very good reason for another episode of this podcast. Given that we haven't seen Harry Goers on screen very often outside of Twin Peaks and his turn in the 90s series *Eerie Indiana, I was curious as to how he got involved with The Vandal.
1: Well, um, I actually was a fan of Eddie Alcazar from his uh, film Tapia, I guess about three or four years later, I got a phone call from him and uh, he asked if I could come over and I said, well, yeah, sure. And so the driver took me over there and I met him for the first time and he explained what he was doing and asked if I wanted to be a part of it. And I said, yes, because I knew who he was.
0: Right. I've watched the Vandal a couple of times now, and I'm still struggling to explain exactly what it is that I'm seeing. It looks like stop frame animation, but then some sequences are live action. Uh, Could you explain what it is that he's actually doing? He calls it Metascope,
1: M-E-T-A-S-C-O-P-E. And what he does is he combines stop motion animation and then layers it with live action sequence this really labor-intensive thing, like anything with animation is, and it took a year and a half just to get that 15 minutes.
0: Wow, right, okay. Because it's a remarkable-looking film, really, really detailed, really meticulously made. Uh, what was it actually like to be on set? Well,
1: um, first of all, the actors, we we just normally acted, and this <laughs> Uh, I was really surprised for each individual actor on our last day. He asked if he could take some special shots of us. And we would stand in this large room, still in our costume, and uh, he would ask us to pose certain ways and to move certain ways. And we did it while he was speaking. And apparently those images or that piece of the film was the part that was superimposed on the animation. It was very strict because you had to get the movements just right.
0: Okay. Um. Are you actually allowed to talk about the storyline of the film? I'm not really sure what's under embargo and what isn't, given that now that there's talk about Oscars and distribution and it will likely play in a lot of other film festivals, which I think is where listeners might be able to catch it.
1: Well, I've read that, but I, I don't know about that. But um, I know Eddie Alcazar is going to get an Oscar. I just don't know when. And I just think he's brilliant. Uh, but in answer to your question... um. The, char- the lead character has a lobotomy, and from the lobotomy, the consequences are is that he has huge anger, giant anger, and he manifests this in the film by destroying pieces of art. And why he's focused on art, I don't know. It hasn't been explained to us. It wasn't even spoken about. And so that's what the film is, and in one of the, his tantrums, I'm at an a museum that he comes to I'm a curator at the museum but apparently he's doing this all over but with him I happen to be in this one museum he was in
0: even though you only get a few scenes it's really great to see you emoting on screen again it's been quite a while
1: yeah see I haven't seen the 15-minute film yet wow really The link is probably buried very deep in all my emails.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you get to see it soon, and I hope listeners can as well, Um, especially if it's in a cinema, because it really feels like something that's so tactile. There's this really strange intimacy to it, the way it uses models and combines formats. I can really see why it's um, being talked of as an Oscar contender. It feels very new.
1: Yeah, and you know, in the world of animation, uh, you know, I just have a pedestrian knowledge of that field, but I know nothing about uh, how technical it is and how many people are in it and the huge, huge culture among animators. And just to get a glimpse of that, I was just astounded. You know, that whole world is out there.
0: Yeah, it really seems there are so many film festivals that just focus on shorts or animations now.
1: Yes, and so apparently what he's done in this Film has uh, kind of shocked everybody. It, it seems to be something new for them. This, per, this exact combination of how he does it.
0: So, how did you first come across Eddie Alcazar's work? I saw it online. You know,
1: I, I, I'm online so much, and um, I came across the Topia thing. And it was the thing I saw. I saw this trailer, and it was shot in black and white, and it was so rich. You could just taste it. I was like, "Wow, this is how people really used to shoot black and white." And so I, you know, I started uh, um, looking for him on the internet. Now that was my exposure to him, as far as meeting him. I just got a phone call one day on my phone, which is very strange because I've had the same phone number for about 25 years, and only about 10 people have the number <laughs> so it I was a little shocked now that we're talking about I'm more perplexed than ever but he called on that number <laughs> I was stunned
0: <laughs> right so was uh working on a partly animated film like working on a regular live action film
1: uh yeah because we basically just acted out everything like a regular movie it, the only thing that was different for me was the uh the movement things that were recorded at the end that we recorded all of our movements.
0: So even though you haven't seen it yet, uh, have you been surprised by the reaction, by the film playing at Cannes?
1: Well, to be honest with you, I was pleasantly surprised, but I'm not surprised because he's uh, in Los Angeles. His name kind of floats around here or there, uh, you know, with people who make films, people who uh, create films, Not the film industry, but the people that are hands on and are trying different things with film. His name seems to always be floating around in there in that group. I just think our best films now are The Independents. And so I just felt like it didn't surprise me because I I felt like that someone that was talked about like that would eventually surface.
0: Uh, so the film's presented by Darren Aronofsky. What was his actual role?
1: He's the executive producer. He's not in the film.
0: Right, so you didn't work with him directly.
1: Yes, I didn't meet him. I mean, i would loved to meet him, but uh, I, haven't, I haven't met him yet.
0: Right. So does the Oscar tipping and all this acclaim mean much to you as an actor? Well, it
1: means everything to me, but uh, as far as this specific project, it doesn't mean anything to me because that would be so far ahead of ourselves to think about it, and so it's something I'm not really Thinking about when he said it, I kind of jump and go, oh, yeah. But, I mean, it just seems so abstract to me at this point and so far away.
0: Last year, you released a book of photographs called um, Ballroom Harry Volume 2. Are you working on another?
1: Have you seen my book? Only online. Yes, yes, yes. You should get the book. Uh, I think you would like it. Uh, Yeah, that's what I do. I'm working on photography. And uh, the past couple of months, I've been going through files and editing out pictures and, you know, potentially thinking about a second book.
0: And these are all photos you've taken throughout your life, is that right?
1: Yes, these are pictures from the 70s until now.
0: Right, I wish more people had documented their lives during those decades.
1: I know, you know, I actually saw people, you know, I started becoming aware of people who did that, and I thought, well, God, you know, I've had a camera a long time, so I started digging and digging and digging, and I went through a lot of things my mother had of her children, you know, and I found some of them in there, and I found some of them in my old house. So in a way, I was able to scavenger uh, just a few pieces from back then.
0: How does it feel seeing all this time condensed into one book? Because in The Vandal, you're playing a curator, and here you are curating your own history.
1: Oh, my God, you're
0: absolutely
1: right. (laughs) Uh, Wow, gosh. Uh, Well, I just have to tell you, I love books. And I, I've always loved books, just love them, love them, love them, love owning them, collecting them. And so the, I, it never occurred to me to do a book. And someone just out of the clear blue asked if I want to do one, and it was just very exciting for me. I, it's just like everything in my body was alive. I just loved everything about it. I loved the meetings, uh, meeting with the editors, uh, talking to the printers. It just was. Very satisfying to me,
0: so the book has shots from your youth from being on the set of Twin Peaks and other productions, and now your life in Texas with all that time in history, do you have a clear idea of what you wanted it to look like?
1: Yes, absolutely, but they wouldn't let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean?
0: Were you being too ambitious? Uh,
1: well, it wouldn't fit uh, I guess the best way to say it is it wouldn't fit in uh effective marketing right. I didn't want to have my name on it and things like that.
0: So the idea was to have someone pick up the book and have no idea whose life they were looking at?
1: No, they would know once they were inside of the book, but if they saw the book on the shelf, they would pick it up and look at it because they wouldn't understand the subject of the book because it wouldn't be written anywhere on, on the cover.
0: I see, but uh, gradually going through the book, they'd get clues about your life and who you were.
1: Yeah, I. and you know, it was my first book, so I basically conceded all the final decisions to them since I considered myself the lucky recipient of the invite. I thought, you know, I will just accommodate them a whole lot.
0: Okay. Um, And are they interested in another book from you?
1: Yes, yes, yes. I actually got, I was in um, Philadelphia, I think it was, about four weeks ago. And I some guy came up to me and offered me a, a deal.
0: <laughs> really? Wow.
1: Yeah, for a book. And of course I just took his card because I I feel uh I feel that I should always be available to the first person who offered me out of loyalty.
0: Right. Has loyalty been a big part of your decision making through your life? Well, I
1: I like to work with people that have done something for me and it For someone to come and offer me a book, I'm going to stay with them, you know. I mean, I just think you have to be loyal to people that you're working with.
0: That does seem like a very deputy and equality. Um, You've certainly built a lot of good relationships with interesting people over your career. How is working on something smaller like the Vandal different to working on, say, Erie, Indiana or Twin Peaks?
1: In Twin Peaks and in Erie, and the Vandal, no one prepared me for anything. (laughs) <laughs> I just walked in and did it. I have that reputation. And uh when I was on Twin Peaks, all the crew used to call me one-take Harry because I would just run the line and I'd be out. <laughs> I would always just nail it. But on The Vandal, I just have to say it was one of my favorite films because, you know, we didn't have a lot of stars. So we were more like artisans. And the atmosphere was so relaxed. As opposed to Twin Peaks, we're trying to make deadlines, make deadlines, that you know this this character, that character. But on the Vandal, it was just it was like an art project. It was very easy, very mellow, very mellow.
0: Interesting, because I've read that the filming of the pilot episode of Twin Peaks was more like a collaborative process, with more freedom than people usually had. Was that your experience?
1: Yes, in the beginning, you're absolutely right. In the in the big, be- the pilot was like a fairy tale. I mean, we were all kind of in a trance because we were being asked to do things that were very different, you know, from the human experience. And, uh, so it was like, we were all going for a ride and we kind of knew it. But the other thing is that everyone immediately trusts David Lynch. That's what I've noticed. Everyone trusts him. I've never questioned anything he's asked my character to do, never.
0: Um, Do you think that was there from the moment you met? Because there's this famous story of you getting hired to play Andy Brennan on Twin Peaks and that you were his cab driver and you both got chatting and he gave you the job off that conversation. Is that true?
1: Well, I had moved to LA and I was going to school and had two jobs. And one of the jobs was I was a, a driver. I used to drive a private car for executives and things like that. And we would some of our clients would be the studios and all that. And one night I got a call to go to this street. I went with David Lynch.
0: And did you recognize him straight away? Oh, absolutely. Almost vomited. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've read that it was a Roy Orbison tribute evening. Yes. Yeah. I drove him out
1: of the hills down and down onto Wilshire Avenue for the memorial. And the instant he got a car, he was just so... Friendly, like he was kind of that. oh, shucks, kind of guy. And you know, when I grew, I'm from a very country town where I grew up is a very country. So, you know, that's kind of how we are. Too. So it was really surprising. And we just talked the whole way. And how long was the ride? The ride probably was like about twenty five, thirty minutes. And then um, I waited at the curb for him because I was supposed to drive him back, but he didn't know that. He thought he was going to just hitch a ride with someone. But, and I remember he was standing out there. He was talking to someone. And he looked, and he saw the car, and he was he had a strange look on his face. And so he came back and got in the car, and we talked some more. We mainly talked about cars. <laughs> and um, he asked me what I did for a living. And I said, "What? Um, well, what did I want to do? And I told him what I was doing, that I wanted to be an actor. And he said, oh, 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 he goes, that is the hardest life. And I just said, you know, you just have to love it. And he said, that's right, you just have to love it. And then he asked if I wanted to be part of a script. Three weeks later, on a huge full production.
0: That's very fast. I interviewed the Twin Peaks casting director, Joanna Ray, a while back about the casting process. He
1: always works with her. They're, They're a very tight and effective team.
0: Yeah, she said that it was really unusual for someone to be cast the way that you were. Um, it seems like such a fairy tale. There must be so many drivers in L.A. who are jobbing actors who would dream of an experience like that.
1: Well, yeah, it is a fairy tale. It's the Hollywood story, and uh, you just hear those stories, and it really is one. And uh, someone I know who works for David every every day is, is an assistant, and she said... He'll, he tells that story over and over to everyone he meets when they talk about Twin Peaks. He tells that story.
0: Well, it is a great story. Yeah.
1: But I thought <laughs> so strange that he's still telling it after all
0: these years. <laughs> um, so within a few weeks of that meeting, you're flown up to Seattle to work on the pilot episode. Is that right? Yes, that's it, Seattle. And this is your first job as an actor, right? Yes. Uh,
1: in fact, I, I was at The Loft, which is probably the second greatest acting school in the country, and I somehow got in it we we only had eight students and they only had that experience but all the people that were in the class with me were working actors i mean they were already working they were just polishing up and all that so i was i was really prepared and then but when i got on the set that was my first time on a set so it was you know it was very uh eye opening you know the first time
0: do you remember what your first production day was like
1: You know, no one's ever asked me that, but I actually do remember, and there's a lot of it I don't remember, but it was me sitting outside of the train car crying. And um, so when I finished it, he called me over and he said, now listen, you keep crying even when I say cut, cry right past it. And he said, don't stop. So I did that.
0: So when you were looking through the script at the scenes that you had, were you surprised to see how much Andy cried? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's different, yeah. And these were scenes you managed to do in one take?
1: Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, I got everything on the show in one take. I can't remember. I think I got mostly everything on one take on the pilot. I'm not sure. I'm sure not all of them were because he he's very specific about what he wants as far as action.
0: Yes, right, because I think that is part of what's so vital to the legacy of Twin Peaks. Scenes where your sincerity is uh really helping the audience to connect to what's a pretty strange story, especially in nineteen ninety.
1: Yeah.
0: So what was that like being on the production? I mean I gather I've heard that it was very, very cold. Um, but was it a good experience?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of us are still friends to this day. I mean, we took over a uh, motel type thing. The thing is, because the cast was so huge, people stuck with their age group. Right. And I was like in the middle of some of those age groups. So I mainly hung out with the kids.
0: Because a lot of the cast hadn't had much experience, right? Do you think that the excitement was from the buzz of just being on a set? Or do you think that everyone knew they were making something great?
1: Yes, we all knew something was happening, but we didn't know what it was and we didn't know how to describe it to each other. But we felt it because you know it was David Lynch doing T V, so we knew you know, something's going on here. Something <laughs> magical.
0: And then when the rest of the world found out about it, it was going from being a driver who was studying acting to being pretty famous and recognizable. Was that strange? No. I don't know why? <laughs> the other day, someone asked me. They said, "How did Twin
1: Peaks change your life?" And uh, I was thinking, I was like, "Well, gosh, uh, I don't know if it really changed it. It was just part of my life." But um, it, there wasn't an adjustment for me. I just I didn't really think about it because I, I don't know. I didn't think about it.
0: Was it because you loved acting and you were looking for your next chance to work?
1: Yeah, I think that's it. I yeah yeah because. Uh, I wasn't a celebrity. I was an actor. A lot of actors are celebrity, but I wasn't. So it, it was different for me.
0: You've never really struck me as someone who chases fame. Well, I chase parts. Is that what you mean? Not really. I mean, looking your, through your filmography, it seems like you've had a pretty unhurried career. I always thought if someone was chasing fame, they would stay in L.A., you know, not move to Texas.
1: Well, I go, I go where the offers are, you know?
0: Would you say you're choosy about your parts?
1: No. Right. I'm not because I don't get that many offers. So I am not choosy. I mean, oh. there are things I won't do. Like, I've been offered numerous times to be someone in law enforcement or a sheriff or something like that. And I've get these offers for law enforcement. I won't do those anymore.
0: Right. Because of it. Has that been a difficult decision to stick to?
1: No, because people would see me on the screen and they would go, "Oh, that's Deputy Andy," and it would ruin the film for them. And then the the producers and the directors would be unhappy too. So you know, it's it's a good decision. It works for everybody.
0: So, what was it like to return as Deputy Andy in season three?
1: Oh, it was wild. Yeah, I mean, I was. Uh, well, you know, it's, that's unusual. I mean, everyone came back except one person
0: out of all those people. Did you believe that it really was coming back when you first heard about it?
1: No. There are rumors all the time. And, you know, people who have been in Los Angeles for a long time, we always say, I'll believe it when I get on the set and film in the camera. And that's what I always saw. And so, no, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> think it was true.
0: So what was your reaction when you got your scenes? Oh, well, I didn't have any
1: reaction because I only got lines. I didn't get a script, and I not even get a whole thing. I just got lines. Everyone only got lines except
0: Kyle. Okay. Everyone. Yes, once your um, scenes were done, you had to hand your lines to a production system who put them in a shredder, right? Yeah. So how do you prepare for a production like this with this much secrecy and this much level of control?
1: Well, first of all, you you hope and you pray that you connect with that character again. And then on top of that, who is this character twenty five years later? And you don't know. So you kind of stab at it. That's the first thing. And as far as the scenes, it just kind of, you know, with David, it's so easy. It's power steering. On the set, it just kind of unfolds.
0: So was it easy when you got back on set to reconnect with the other actors and with David? Uh, Yeah, it was
1: Easy, but overwhelming well, that was just so strange it was a great it was a great experience uh, you know everything just ran like a clock I mean I was just surprised how efficient and wonderful everything was on a production that was so big i mean be, I would be on a scene and I'd step out of my scene and I'd look over on another sound stage and they would be filming another scene from the. Um, that I knew nothing about. I mean, sometimes they would be filming, you know, back to back like that to get it in the can.
0: Is it ever difficult to work that way with um, so little information? Never. I imagine the experience of shooting the pilot set an unreasonably high standard of what a production would be like. Is that right?
1: Well, it does, but in my case, I was mainly dealing with fear.
0: When you say fear, is this the sort of fear that's being felt by everyone who is having their first experience as an actor on a set?
1: Um, well, no, I'm some of the young ones were, uh, but I, the people that had been in the industry a while were just excited. I don't they had much fear. I think they were just excited.
0: Uh, was fear there when you returned for season two? No,
1: there was no fear. It's just strange, but, but no fear.
0: Were you surprised by it when you finally saw it?
1: Um,. No, but I sure was happy because <laughs> what I realized is that David was filming his own TV show. No one told him what to do, told him to change anything, told him to put anything in. It was all him. So to see the final product, it was like dessert. I mean it was pure lint, pure. And and to be part of that, I was like, wow.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of viewers had that same response. But um, as an actor, you must have been bringing your own questions about Andy to season three.
1: Yeah, and I didn't know. So, you know, we just
0: we all dealt with that.
1: Just um, I just trusted him. So
0: Speaking of trust, um, you don't have to answer this, but when I was speaking to Joanna Ray uh, a while back, she said that cast members had to sign NDAs to work on season three. Is that true?
1: Uh, I had to sign one. I, I'm i not sure if I signed one for the TV series. Uh, no, it sounds unusual to me. I actually heard other shows do that too. I wasn't aware of it. and I signed okay. an NBA. And I heard other people say, oh, yeah, well, I had to sign one. People on other projects. So I guess it might be a common thing.
0: Yeah, it does seem increasingly common. But um, Joanna mentioned that the... Uh, in the NDAs were in for 10 years. Is that right?
1: Oh, no, I don't know anything about that. I got in trouble for the NDA. You did? Because I did it. I did, yes. I, they called and tried to scare me. I um, was talking about David Bowie, and they called me and said, well, they were really upset, and they said, you can't be talking about him.
0: Sorry, you broke up a bit there. You were talking about when you got scolded for revealing that David Bowie would be part of the return? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if you were part of uh, Unrecorded Night, David Lynch's new project, you wouldn't be able to talk about it?
1: No. And I, I, I wouldn't. Anybody would that worked on it. They just wouldn't.
0: Yeah. Having this kind of bubble, this creative um, world in which people can trust each other not to reveal too much, really seems like a wonderful way to be able to be free and create.
1: Yeah. I wish you could meet him and talk to him. I would just be so surprised and so happy. He's just a regular guy. You would just really love that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have no doubt. I think it would be amazing. Um, some Pigs fans did get to talk to David at an event I worked on a few years ago called uh, Conversations with the Stars, where some of the cast toured Australia doing a Q and a and David Skyped in for a few of those events. Were you going to come over for that?
1: Uh, no, I wasn't asked for that one. I was asked on the next one. It's been postponed because of the, there's another group coming out and doing the same thing, and I'm in that group.
0: Well, oh, that's great news, because it was a really amazing experience to get to talk to Cheryl Lee and Michael Horse and Dana Ashbrook and Kimmy, of course. Boy, that, Kimmy, that Kimmy's something, isn't she? Oh, she was incredible. She never switched off.
1: She's so fun.
0: <laughs> the whole time we were up there, I was thinking, I don't know why you don't do stand-up. She just had the audience in the palm of her hand the whole time.
1: I know. Uh, I agree. I always tell her that. All these years, I cannot believe you have your own TV show.
0: Absolutely. Well, I hope you can make it over to Australia for the next one, whenever that is.
1: Well, it's, it's been very exciting to talk to someone in
0: Australia while
1: <laughs> I'm hiding out for COVID.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me too. You just call me any if you need something. <laughs> Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, just keep my phone number. Oh, I will. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
0: And that was my conversation with Harry Goez, a.k.a. Deputy Andy Brennan. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Twin Peaks The Return, a Season 3 podcast. I'm Andy Hazel. This music is by The Black Hundred. And I'll be back with another episode next time I'm gifted an opportunity like this one to find out more about Twin Peaks.